0: This week, simulating the universe in a computer.
1: If you put two observations of the virtual universe and the real universe side by side, it's actually very hard by eye to to distinguish the two. And an online game that's helping scientists
0: map the brain. So it's really amazing that anyone anywhere
2: can participate in neuroscience research now if you've got a computer and an internet connection.
0: Plus adding new letters to the DNA alphabet. This is The Nature Podcast for May the 8th, 2014. I'm Noah Baker. First off, we're handing over to Kerry, who this week is in New York, with a tale of baseball, neuroscience and online gaming.
3: Thanks guys, and hi from the East Coast, where recently this happened. This
4: year and the
1: coming years with these two guys, where they will hit in the lineup. Here's a ball
5: crushed. Teixeira hits a rocket into the second deck and
3: That's the New York Yankees scoring a home run against the LA Angels here in New York last weekend. The pitcher delivered the ball so fast I could barely see it, but nonetheless it was knocked out of the park. Being able to hit the ball relies on skill, but also on the brain's ability to detect movement, as of course to so much of our non-baseball life. But how does the brain feed information from the world out there to the inside? It's a classic problem in visual neuroscience. And a complicated one. We don't have a very good map even of the retina of the eye, let alone the brain's entire visual circuit. Luckily, a group of intrepid cartographers have been busy making such a map. And it helps resolve a decades-long conundrum about how we see things move. It's the work of Princeton neuroscientist Sebastian Sung and about 100,000 other people. We'll talk about the team in just a moment. First off, I asked Sebastian about the big challenges in seeing more clearly how vision works.
2: So if you've got a machine, um, you need a parts list for that machine to even begin to understand how it works. Just having the parts list itself was pretty difficult. Uh, and it's been known since 1964 that neurons in the retina, they respond selectively to motion in particular directions. So you can record from a neuron, pass the stimulus in one direction... Um, The neuron goes pop, 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 generates a lot of action potentials or spikes. You pass the stimulus in the other direction and the neuron's silent. So that phenomenon is called direction selectivity. Um, We've known about it for a long time, but it's been difficult to explain how that comes about in the
3: retina. So you need to work out the parts list and then you need to work out when the system starts to care, what direction things move across the visual field.
2: Right. So... We focused our attention on the starburst amacrine cell, which was previously shown to be direction selective, or more specifically, its dendrites, its branches. And each of those dendrites is uh, responding to motion at that location and in a particular direction.
3: So here we are in the retina with our friends, the starburst cells, starburst amacrine cells. And they're receiving inputs from other cells in the retina and delivering that information further on into the system, into the brain. How did you further examine the the cell circuits um, that they're part of?
2: Well, um, the discovery was to trace the wiring diagram all the way from the input cells, those are called the photoreceptors, to the ganglion cells, which are the output cells of the retina. Surprisingly, these pathways remain largely uncharted. Even inside a relatively simple system like the retina, um, we don't know these pathways. Uh, And so part of the new discovery is exactly what are the pathways that information takes through this motion detection circuit.
3: And you weren't alone in this quest, right, to draw the wiring diagram of the retina. This is the mouse retina we're talking about. What did you actually do in order to to trace this map?
2: The most difficult part of uh, the process was to reconstruct starburst American cells in 3D um, based on the images that we had. And to do this, we enlisted volunteers. We created a a website and an online game, which is kind of like a 3D coloring book. Um, And each of the pages of this coloring book are images of a mouse retina. And the players of this game, um, by coloring in regions inside this coloring book, they actually trace out um, the branches of starburst American cells. So far, iWire has registered over 120,000 players uh, from more than 100 countries. So it's really amazing that anyone anywhere can participate in neuroscience research now, if you've got a computer and an internet connection. Now, the starburst amocrine cells are the most challenging uh, of the cells that we're reconstructing because their branches are really thin and the power to reconstruct these neurons was unlocked only for eyewires who passed a really challenging test of accuracy. So these are in the elite group, 2,183 of them contributed, uh, and they're listed as the co-authors in the supplementary information.
3: And once the i-wires and your team had constructed this circuit, what did it tell you that neuroscientists didn't already know about how the retina helps us perceive motion?
2: Well, we found evidence for what's called a time delay neural network that's the idea that we have um, neurons that are connected together um, but if a neuron has two inputs one of which is delayed in time one of which is slower than the other it's possible for it to detect a sequence so this time delay mechanism people had always theorized about it but this is the first evidence for it in the uh, mammalian retina
3: So if I see someone appear on my left and then they gradually move across to the centre of my visual field, neurons are responding first when they arrive and then responding to the difference between where they were and where they got to as soon as they get to the middle. And could this new discovery be useful to people who are trying to design robots, for example, that can see better?
2: That's a great question. I don't think that the mechanism we found here would be so fascinating to... Somebody who builds robots or who does um, artificial intelligence. This is, as I said, the time delay neural network idea is an old one. But as we learn more about this retinal circuitry, I'm sure we'll start to find more complicated things which make motion detection more robust.
3: Neuroscientist Sebastian Sung at Princeton and the team need your help. Go to iWire.org to help them out on their next voyage of discovery. Back to you guys.
0: Thanks, Kerry. And she'll be back later on with news of cowpats and bedbugs in the research highlights. But first, how do you model the universe? Questions like this require big brains, both human and computer. Many scientists have tried, but creating an accurate simulation, one that describes both the universe's massive scale and its diversity, has proved a difficult nut to crack. Now, Mark Vogelsberger and his team from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology have had a breakthrough, and their model could help us test the laws of physics. Lizzie Gibney caught up with Mark to find out more.
6: So why do we try to model the universe in this way?
1: The evolution uh, a short time after the Big Bang is is rather complicated of the universe. The first million years in the universe, so the universe is very simple in in terms of its content and its structure. It's very linear in some sense. But after that time, the structure formation, so the the growth of galaxies and uh, structures that we see in the universe, is highly non-linear, and this problem requires uh, very sophisticated computer simulations.
6: And how successful have simulations been so far?
1: We have a pretty good understanding of the initial conditions of the universe, and we think that we also know the main ingredients of the universe. So in principle, we should be able to create a, a virtual or a mock universe But over the last decades, there were many problems in um, the formation of galaxies. A big problem was, for example, the formation of galaxies, which just look like our Milky Way galaxy, so a spiral galaxy. So many models and many simulations have actually failed to produce these galaxies. Only only over the last years, people have understood the the relevant physics that's required to really form these galaxies.
6: Producing these models are, are far from easy. What have you done that's different to the previous attempts?
1: So one difference is that um, we have taken, so to speak, all the physics that we think is important uh, for galaxy formation and combined it in one larger model, essentially. So the the physics model that we have is very complete, and it's also, um, so to speak, numerically well-posed, which means that it has a very clear structure how it's put onto the computer and into the numerical simulation. The second difference is that The size of our simulation is significantly larger than what was done before. We simulate a very large fraction of the universe, so it's actually a cubic region which has a side length of about 350 million light-years. And within that cube, we have a very high numerical resolution. And the third point is that we use a new numerical scheme, actually, to solve the equations. And I think these three points, this combination of these three points, actually leads to a virtual universe that we have produced on the supercomputer, which looks pretty much like ours so much better than than previous attempts.
6: So you mentioned that you used a supercomputer presumably it does take quite a lot of computing power to do
1: these kind of calculations. So what we really need is something like uh, 10,000 computers at the same time and they need to to simulate this or calculate this for about half a year which means if you try to do this on an ordinary desktop computer um, or a state-of-the-art desktop computer this would take something like 5,000 years to, to calculate.
6: You ran this massive simulation and how did it turn out? How much did it look like the universe that we actually do see when we look through our telescopes?
1: If you imagine you have a virtual telescope in the simulation and you observe the sky in the simulation with this virtual telescope and you compare these to to real observations like with the Hubble Space Telescope, for example, you actually get images of the galaxy distribution and the the galaxy morphologies, so the structure of the galaxies and also the colours of galaxies which just look like our universe. So if you put two observations of the virtual universe and the real universe side by side, it's actually very hard by eye to, to distinguish the two.
6: Fantastic. It sounds like a really impressive simulation and I know also that it looks very beautiful because you've made some, some videos of it, but presumably that's not the only reason why we've done it. What, else, what can we actually learn from the model that you've made?
1: simply given the fact that we have this model uh, which is all based on the laws of physics that we know today and on top of that um, also um, the matter components of the universe that we that we believe are there like um, dark matter for example and given the fact that if you take all this combined with the initial conditions of the universe that we observe that this can produce a universe which just looked like ours tells you that our model also the composition of the universe in terms of dark matter and dark energy and ordinary matter is actually correct kind of a indirect evidence for the correctness of the standard model of what we think how the universe works. So it's
6: a great way of checking the the theories that we already have.
1: Exactly yeah and you know in astronomy or in astrophysics in general we have this problem we cannot make experiments it's not like uh, experimental science like um, general physics so the whole virtual universe that we have is now kind of a experimental setup and you can now play with it. So you can make tests with it, and you can you, know, you can observe it and you can reduce the data in it, and you can make correlations and so on so it's actually like not directly an experiment, but it's kind of a virtual experiment, and it creates a virtual universe that you can then kind of observe and, and test against your models.
6: What about if it doesn't if the, the simulation doesn't fit uh, with what we see? Could it not be that, that some of our theories are actually wrong?
1: So as I said in the beginning, the fact that we have such good agreement in many aspects uh, tells us that the model cannot be absolutely wrong. However, as you correctly pointed out, there are also certain aspects in the model and certain predictions of the model which are wrong. So we, we know that they are wrong because there are already observations of galaxy available which tell us a different story. So there's some um, room for improvement in the future. And actually, let me point out that you know, it's, it's not the successes of the model that push us forward. It's definitely the failures because then we can learn what kind of is wrong in our physical understanding, and we come to try to come up with better theories for that.
0: That was Mark Vogelsberger talking to Lizzie Gibney. And if you want to see some of the beautiful outputs of Mark's simulation, Nature Video has you covered with a film on the findings. Check it out at youtube.com forward slash nature video channel. And, while you're there, for those of a more biological leaning, we've got another film, exploring how electromagnetic noise emitted from devices you might use is affecting Robin's ability to migrate. Now it's back to Kerry on the East Coast for the research highlights.
3: manure, often spread on farmland as fertilizer, could also be spreading genes for antibiotic resistance. A US-based team gave themselves the glamorous job of studying DNA from samples of dairy cow poo. They found 80 genes that help bacteria survive in the face of antibiotics, including some from a gene group they hadn't seen before. Antibiotic resistance is a huge worry in humans and animals, but it's not yet totally clear how the genes might jump from farmland to food chain. That paper is in the journal mBio. In 2012, here in New York, there was an infestation of bedbugs. You can buy bug-proof sheets now, just in case. Well, it turns out that for birds with a nest infestation, the same approach works a treat. Researchers in the Galapagos noticed that groups of Darwin's finches were bothered by infestations of fly larvae in their nests. But they also saw that the birds sometimes lined their nests with cotton fibres pulled from people's laundry. So the team put out some fibres treated with pesticide. Voila, the birds that weaved them into their nests got rid of their bugs. Find that report in Current Biology.
0: Soon I'll be talking to David Ray with a rundown of the news. But before that, Life's Alphabet has gained another pair of letters. From plankton to people, all organisms store information in their genome with just four chemicals, represented by the letters A, T, C and G. These DNA letters contain instructions for making proteins, and they ensure that our traits are passed on to future generations. But now, a team at the Scripps Research Institute in California have engineered E. coli bacteria to build its DNA with two additional letters, so far rather unhelpfully called 5.6 and NAM. Nature reporter Ewan Calloway spoke to Floyd Romsberg and asked how he and his team bucked billions of years of evolution by adding to DNA's alphabet.
4: The substrates for the synthesis of DNA are just uh, molecules called triphosphates. And so you have a triphosphate for G, C, A and T that are naturally produced within the cell. Now a cell won't produce the triphosphates of our unnatural nucleotides. 5, 6, and NAM. So, what we had to do is we had to find a way to get them inside the cell. So, what we did was we found a protein from an, uh, uh, other organisms that, when expressed in bacteria, recognize the triphosphates of our nucleotides when we add them to the media and facilitate their import into the bacteria. So, once we did that, once we had them inside the cell, the absolutely normal replication machinery of E. coli that replicates DNA containing G, C, A, and T recognized our unnatural nucleotides perfectly fine and replicated the base pair with high efficiency and fidelity. So we actually didn't have to do any manipulation of the cell to get them to take the natural base pair once we had it inside the cell.
5: So you're saying they've got genes now with not just four DNA letters, but, but six? That's right. That's quite impressive, actually. I, I'm just sitting back and thinking about it. Do these extra letters do anything yet?
4: They don't do anything yet, but that's the most exciting part. So what we've done is we've gotten bacterial cells to store the increased information. So now we're working on retrieving it. The normal steps of information retrieval is you take DNA, transcribe it into RNA, and then you translate the RNA into protein. And so what we're examining right now is the transcription of DNA containing our unnatural base pair into RNA containing the unnatural base pair. And what we'll look at next is translation of the RNA containing the unnatural base pair into proteins containing unnatural amino acids.
5: And adding these foreign base pairs, essentially making, I don't know, this is a poor analogy, but a a bilingual organism. I mean, do, do the alphabets work together?
4: In in terms of working together, one of the biggest challenges over the past 15 years of optimizing these unnatural base pairs in my lab was getting them to function within DNA without perturbing the function of DNA. So what we knew from the beginning we wanted to do was be able to simply expand the number of letters that DNA uses to store information without perturbing its ability to handle all the information that it already has. So what we wanted to do is we didn't want to destroy the natural system. We wanted to expand its ability to store information.
5: So calling it a bilingual cell maybe isn't that awful in a metaphor, is it?
4: Well, I mean, it's kind of like if you read a book that was written with four letters, you're not going to be able to tell many interesting stories that way. And if you're simply given more letters, you can invent new words, you can find new ways to use those words, and you could probably tell more interesting stories.
5: Is there any limit to the number of, of foreign letters that be, that can be integrated into DNA? And to extend your metaphor, uh, the number of different stories that can be told.
4: Everyone's very familiar with a normal base pair between GC and AT, and the hydrogen bonds. The way those two base, the way that nucleotides within a base pair interact. And I think there was kind of the preconception that those hydrogen bonds were essential for a base pair. And there's only so many ways that you can arrange those hydrogen bonds, so it just didn't look like there were many ways that you could get different base pairs. What my group did was we we used a force that's completely outside of that used by natural DNA. What, what that sort of shows is that there's nothing special about hydrogen bonds within DNA. You you just have to replace them with a strong and selective force. So there are other forces that one could envision using and maybe designing other unnatural base pairs. But I would also emphasize that right now, having simply one additional unnatural base pair allows for the encoding of proteins containing more unnatural amino acids than we could ever possibly use.
5: Could we or would we ever want to make a life form that, that totally dispensed with conventional nucleotides?
4: want or be able to are sort of two different things. Um, I, I don't particularly want to. <laughs> so a lot of times, a lot of people say, oh, you'll make an organism completely out of your unnatural DNA. That's utterly impossible. And that that's just not going to happen because there are too many things that recognize DNA and that manipulate it in a cell. It's too integrated into every facet of a cell's life. But what we've done now is we've not created an organism that's not fully unnatural, but it is semi-synthetic and it does have unnatural synthetic components that allow you to include more information in DNA
0: than possible with natural systems. That was Floyd Romesberg speaking to Ewan Calloway. Finally this week, news editor David Ray joins me in the studio. And first, a worrying report about antibiotic resistance.
7: Yeah, exactly. I know. I mean, uh, this is a, a report that came out last week by the WHO, and it was a sort of map to show uh, some of the countries and the levels of antimicrobial resistance in them. And obviously, I think as most people, listeners will certainly be aware in the West, it's a big issue when we go into hospital. There's a concern that we may become infected with something that can't be treated by antibiotics. But I think more starkly what the WHO report says is this is a bigger concern in countries which have far less control over their medicines, and are using them far more than we are, uh, in, in particular, you might look at sort of countries, uh, developing countries uh, like Nigeria, and also the big countries, famously Brazil, Russia, India, and China.
0: So, bigger problems in the developing world. What kind of problems could we be facing?
7: Well, I mean, at the moment, we know in some of the, the studies, sort of. Uh, come out coincidentally at the same time as the, the hula port have shown that in Nigeria for example 95% of staphylococcus aureus infections cannot be treated with methicillin which is one of the big sort of fallback medicines to to treat that kind of infection so that leaves us in a dangerous spot because Nigeria doesn't have as tight controls on antibiotics as for example the UK or the US does and it also uses a lot of uh, antibiotics in um, in livestock for example so a lot of these end up in the um, water supply and because of poor sanitation as well, uh, people are increasingly taking antibiotics without knowing it and also because of over prescription over, uh, of these medicines and therefore making themselves more immune, if you like, to, to antibiotics. And how much of a problem
0: in the world could this become? Are we talking really serious issues across the world or is this going to be a a localised problem in Nigeria, for example?
7: Well, I think a a big issue, this is the main sort of underlying fact of this Hula Port is that it's going to be a big issue across the world. This is now a global issue. It's not just about Western states who can afford these often quite expensive antibiotics. But I mean, one of the quotes we've got in the piece from a guy at the Centre for Disease Dynamics in in, in the States is saying that it's suddenly over prescription of these medicines is essentially destroying a valuable resource. So we have the antibiotics to use, but if we overuse them or there's completely limitless control over them, then they're going to become void and basically unable to work. And, and a world without antibiotics isn't a world we want to live in. No, quite right, too. I mean, they are the key drug across the world for, for treating sort of minor ailments up to life-threatening ones. And if we sort of make them uh, unusable, which is basically what who is warning they might become, then uh, we're back to square one in, in a world, I think the post-antibiotic era is what who are actually calling it. So that's the sort of stark warning there.
0: In the wake of this report, what are scientists suggesting to try to tackle the problem? Can can we tackle it, or is it too late?
7: Yeah, I think they're saying certainly there's a chance we can do. And and what I think the the things they're suggesting are things that we might be uh, familiar with in, in the west and that's about educating patients about you know not taking them antibiotics for the cold or the flu for example and uh, and, and sort of other m- mitigation techniques against this which probably mostly relate down to stopping over prescription better regulation of of handing out these medicines in 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 sort of the developing world and uh, yeah patient education there as well.
0: So from averting one disaster to averting a totally different type, avalanches, you may remember recently a pretty devastating avalanche in Everest. But people don't necessarily think about avalanches out of alpine regions and, and towards areas that might be populated.
7: That's, that's quite light now. I mean, I think obviously up in, in the sort of ski villages and things in, in the Alps and in, the, in wherever they are in the world are, are quite used to avalanches and, and can apply techniques to try and stop them or certainly mitigate the effects in, in populated areas. But elsewhere it's far more difficult and I think what some people wouldn't know and certainly I didn't know before we sort of investigated this story was that avalanches can hit on coastal areas especially up uh, up in high high latitudes and in particular one uh, study that's just come out is about an island chain up in between Russia and and Japan so quite far north and what's come to light it was part of this study is a historical record of deaths and sort of timing of, of, of amount of snowfall over the last 100 years and the authors of the study have found out that these islands are probably the most avalanche prone place in the world. But they're quite an unusual type of avalanche in that they're not obviously high up in the mountains. These are coastal settlements, mostly mining ones, and they suffer a lot of snow, long winters. And the, the slopes that the people have been building the houses beside are only about two, 300 metres high. But despite not being that high, they're obviously fairly dangerous and they're causing a lot of deaths and have done for 100 or so years. So what these researchers wanted to do is study the effects of such avalanches and how we might be able to stop those, um, mitigate the effects of them essentially, and, uh, and cut the number of deaths. This
0: data set that they've essentially got, is it a particularly large data set? Is it something that's unusual to
7: science? It's certainly usable. I mean, I think that the main thing here is the fact they've been able to get it at all. This is data that no one else had, and it just happened that this uh, Japanese researcher had been digging it out, and that the French author, the authors of this paper managed to find him and therefore his archive of, of deaths. And I think we're talking about 750 deaths over the last 100 years, which is more than in Canada than New Zealand combined.
0: And how could data like this help us prevent avalanches in the future? Beyond don't build where avalanches might happen.
7: Yeah, this is the key to it. I mean, I think up in the mountains they've been doing research on avalanches for three hundred years, and they have designated building zones in in places like ski villages. But in places like this, which is sort of loosely colonized, and often the building quality is a lot worse because they're quite remote. So we're talking wooden houses as opposed to sort of brick-built ones. Uh, so the key here will be to use this in as we colonize more and more sort of the areas, you know up in the arctic for example for more mining communities we can use the information they've found to help stop such sort of low-level avalanches occurring
0: all right thanks david and remember that those stories and more can be found at nature.com forward slash news that's it for this week if you have any opinions on changing the dna alphabet or anything else from the show we'd love to hear from you on twitter at nature podcast or by email podcast at nature.com Thanks for listening, I'm Noah Baker.